Welcome to Profiles from WFIU. I'm Aaron Kane. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars, and public figures to get to know the stories behind their work. Our guest today is Dawn Beeler. She's an associate professor at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, where she researches and teaches subjects like human geography and environmental justice. And in her work, she devotes a lot of thought to something, or some things most people prefer not to think about, pests. Insects, rodents, and other undesirable companions that make their way into our homes and affect our lives in many ways. Dawn Beeler has written a book on the subject called Pests in the City, and it focuses on kind of the top four contenders for dreaded household pests, flies, bedbugs, cockroaches, and rats. And in the book, Beeler argues that the urban ecologies that support pests have been shaped not only by the physical features of cities, but also by social inequalities, housing policies, and our own ideas about what domestic spaces are. Recently, Dawn Beeler was on the IU campus to give a lecture and lead a workshop about how urban animals and humans interact. While she was here, she joined me in the WFIU studios. Dawn Beeler, welcome to Profiles. I'm glad to be here. So it's been a long time since I took geography. I think high school was my last time studying the subject. And back then, I don't remember being told that there were two main subgroups of geography, physical geography and human geography. To start off with, could you talk a little bit about the two geographies and especially human geography, since broadly speaking, that is your field? I could go back to when the split happened, but I think I'll keep it a little more contemporary. Basically, the physical geographers study the physical processes of the Earth's surface, the way water wears away at soil and rock and finds its way down mountains to the ocean through rivers and so on, weather processes, biological and ecological processes on the Earth's surface. And human geographers study the human processes of the planet. We study borders, and that would be political geography. We study migration, the way humans move across the Earth's surface. We study the ways we understand space and place. So that means basically, uh, you know, I'm coming here from Baltimore, not where is Baltimore. We know where Baltimore is, the latitude and longitude. We can find it easily on a map. But why is Baltimore? How do places get to be the way they are with all of their environmental and social and cultural and political and the, the human mix that we have in any place. That's what human geographers study. I would love to talk a little bit more about how these two things come together, though, because I don't think we should keep the split too hard. I don't think we should keep that border hard. I think it actually, they meld into each other at a certain point, And that's where some of the most interesting stuff happens. Well, yeah, because even to hear you describe it, I'm tempted to start thinking in terms of natural geography and unnatural geography. <laughs> and that wouldn't be the right reaction, probably. Nature is a whole other thing for geographers. We have thoroughly uh, deconstructed that term, both the term natural and unnatural, which is an interesting conversation in itself. I mean, what is nature? 
Are humans unnatural or natural? Well, now we're getting into philosophical territory. So. <laughs> Which geographers love, too. What was it that first attracted you to this field, either geography in general or human geography in particular? Oh, gosh. Well, I was a biology undergraduate, and I studied ecology. I had to declare my major sophomore year. Well, then let's wind it back even further. What got you interested in biology? In oh, gosh. Year? In high school, I became a big environmentalist. And I thought my best way of contributing to saving the earth would be to be able to be a scientist to study the earth. And my father had majored in biology. And in some ways, I wanted to follow his footsteps, but take it in this environmental direction. And I, you know, loved the creatures and the plants and the, the fungi of the earth. Uh, so that's why I studied biology. But I also took this environmental studies track and a women's studies track as an undergraduate. And there was a lot of social science in those, asking questions. Some of them were still about the environment, but more about how do we understand the environment, not just what is the environment, but how do humans fit into that picture? And by junior year, just a year after I declared my major, I realized I'm going to finish out this major. But what I am really more, what I like to think about is how humans fit with this environment, both in terms of kind of the physical processes by which we situate ourselves in the environment and the cultural meanings that we make of the environment um, and the, the way we know the environment. Was there a moment? Was there a class? Was there a paper you had to write or one particular course that you took where that idea really activated the need to kind of synthesize those things? Oh, gosh. That's, a, that's an amazing question. You're taking me back to when I was 20, 21 years old. Well, I do remember a particular biology class where I realized I, I'm not getting an A in this class. <laughs> I think I'm a social scientist instead. That's one I, form of inspiration. Right, right. I think I got a B. It wasn't that bad, but, you know, I wanted to get A's. I took a class actually on gender and religion junior year in college. I loved that class. We were reading these old texts from the Middle East about why the goddesses went away in the development of monotheistic religions. I found a way of weaving environment into that. I was thinking about, you know, there are all these earth mother goddesses. Why did people stop worshiping these earth mother goddesses? And I, those questions just set me on fire. Another class I took then my senior year, which I think really sealed the deal for me, was with the wonderful historian Craig Stephen Wilder. I recommend to anyone you know, check out his work. He taught this class on urban history, and it was my first straight-up history class. I'd taken history of science. I also love history of science. And we went back to ancient times researching how people built cities and how both the environment and inequalities between people on the basis of race, labor, gender, all fit into making cities. I owe Dr. Wilder my career path. He just, he really changed the way I thought about things. I grew up on a farm, and now suddenly I was really into cities. That's how I got to social science. <laughs> Well, you grew up on a farm, and the first book that you wrote, the book we're going to talk about some today at least, Pests in the City. Now, when we talk about pests, and that title reinforces this, we're talking about urban areas. And it seems that one of the main points that you're making is that you can't fully understand the history 
of cities and the history of issues of, say, housing without understanding the history of pests. Yes, I think that's true. These creatures have been with us forever. They've been with us for a very long time. They're an essential part of human habitation. And part of the motivation for how we build our cities and how we maintain our homes comes from our many thousands of years of living with these creatures. This is not particularly an urban thing, but I'll just give you an example that pertains in a lot of different spaces. The idea of spring cleaning. So spring cleaning, you know, it's nice to renew yourself when it's springtime. But another really important reason why spring cleaning happens in spring is that after the long winter, pests' reproductive cycles have slowed down. So the bed bug infestation that was running wild last summer slows down in the winter, and spring is this really good time to just clean up everything and get rid of all the last few bed bugs in your house, hopefully. So that's where spring cleaning comes from. So it's not and, just renewal and <laughs> the earth waking up again and laundering your sheets just because. Right. It's also because your sheets probably have little blood spots on them because you've got a bit of a bed bug infestation in there. So the way that we maintain our homes, a lot of that has had to do with pests for a really long time. And we build our cities thinking that they're human places. We think that our homes and our cities are just for us. But that's never the case, and it's never been the case. Now, as I say that, it's important to point out that pests are more of a problem for some people than for others. That's a big part of my book. But we've all, people of all social statures have had to deal with pests. You're listening to Profiles, from WFIU. Our guest is Dawn Beeler, Associate Professor of Geography at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, and the author of Pests in the City. One of the things I think that your book accomplishes really handily is to make people contemplate the definition of a pest, first of all to kind of grapple with that because, you know, it's something we probably don't think about because the whole idea of a pest is not to think about it, not to have it around and not to have it on your mind. And it also makes us contemplate definition of wildlife. Wildlife is this category of critter that can only be found in national forests or out in the open ocean. And other things that we like to call pests or vermin are something else. But one of the things I think that I get from your book is that they're a form of wildlife too. And even though they're unwelcome, things like flies, bedbugs, roaches, and rats, they are also adapting to their ecosystem. It just happens to be one that we partially made for them. And like you said, we think we're making human spaces exclusively. But all the while, they're shared with another kind of wildlife That kind of opened my eyes when I was reading your book. Was that something you set out to do or that just kind of happened? Well, I think it goes back to that thing you said about natural and unnatural. That's a similar kind of divide to this pest versus wildlife issue. If we start to break down what's natural, what's unnatural, then we also start to break down these other categories of what's a human space, what's not a human space, what's a pest and what's wildlife. And it all starts to look a lot more mixed up, I think. 
Yeah, and maybe there's even three tiers because there are animals that we invite into our homes that we domesticate that are our pets, and then there are the animals that we do not know that we are inviting into our <laughs> homes, and then there are the ones that we disinvite and they come anyway. <laughs> so those are things like the bed bug, and uh, I think with your book you started with flies, if memory serves, but. The bed bug, I think, was probably the one that I found the most disgusting. So why not start there? Now, you and I, and really several generations of people, grew up in an era that was mostly bed bug free, and a part of the world that was mostly bed bug free. But that would not have been the case had you and I grown up right around 1900. And it also wouldn't have been true if we would have been born right around 2000. So um, maybe it's time. We can't avoid it any longer. Maybe it's time that you introduce the bed bug to us. Sure. So the bed bug is maybe the size of a grain of millet or a, maybe even a little bit smaller, like a sesame seed. And it has piercing mouth parts. And when it inserts its piercing mouth parts into you, you don't really feel it immediately. But it's sucking blood from you. Its abdomen expands. So a bed bug that's sucked some blood has a nice reddish-brown kind of abdomen to it. And they kind of cluster in these hidden places in typically homes because they have a reliable source of blood there, especially at night when someone lays down in their bed. They can be in other places. But in a home, they might cluster under a picture frame or under the mattress is very common in grooves of wood in a floor or in a chair. And then at night, when someone has laid down in the bed, they sense the person's emanations or carbon dioxide and other things we're giving off. And they march over to the person and they perch on the body and they do their business. And now, do they perch on the body or they hold on to the bedclothes? A word, by the way, <laughs> that I did not know before reading this. That's a wonderfully antiquated word, the bedclothes. But I understood that's one of the ugh, one of the ways you can tell you have them is the marks they leave on the bedclothes as well as the body. Yes, yes. So they will get on the bedclothes. And often what happens in the middle of the night is that someone might, you know, they start to feel that itch afterwards and they thrash a little bit and they smash some of them. And so then you get that little blood spot, the reddish brown blood left from the bed bug. That's one of the telltale signs. Something we can probably start talking about now that shows up throughout your book is kind of what I feel right now like calling anti-pest propaganda, which is something that we only see maybe in an advertising context nowadays. But there is more to it in, say, the first third of the 20th century, according to your book. And I know that there was all kind of speculation with bed bugs about all the diseases that they were probably spreading. But I think that for a long time since, we've been pretty sure that one of the only saving graces of the bed bug, if there could be one, is that they don't transmit. They're not vectors of any diseases, although that's not to say that they don't harm your health through lack of sleep or whatever. But come to find out, there's been at least one study the University of Pennsylvania that suggests they might carry trypanosomes, the little microscopic beasts that cause Chagas disease, which is probably the deadliest disease in the Americas right now. So the bed bug is finally scientifically earning the slight that we gave it back in the day. So what sort of things were they saying about the bed bug to try to encourage people to get them out of their homes? Well, 
It's interesting. So I know exactly the study you're talking about. And I know Michael Levy, who's the professor who's been working on that. I actually work in a working group with him. He does great stuff. What happened in some of those labs in the early 20th century was that people observed that bedbugs could theoretically carry a whole range of diseases. And I could rattle off like five different ones, maybe typhoid fever, dysentery, plague, things that are seen as being carried in the blood. None of it was really practically true. Whether or not they could actually do it in the laboratory, I don't know. But it wasn't practically the case that they actually did this in the world. The mental health issues that you point to are very serious and have always been very serious. And that's actually something I've been researching with a colleague, Lauren Henderson, at my current institution, UMBC, where we're looking at blog posts from people who've experienced bed bug infestation. And there's, I would say, a whole complex of issues that people face when they've got a bed bug infestation. And it's especially a problem for people who are low income and don't have a lot of choices as far as their housing goes. So they might fear stigma if their housing situation is precarious. They might be worried that their landlord will evict them or that they'll be blacklisted from renting because they're a known bedbug carrier. So then they start to hide things, and hiding things is never healthy. means that often if they're afraid that they might transmit the bedbugs to a friend, romantic partner, their children, they might isolate themselves. People have also been forcibly isolated from their communities, shunned by their communities because they have bed bugs. Some people have taken really drastic measures as well because they hear somewhere, oh, if I douse my home in alcohol or another substance, that will drive them away. Well, then they light a match and it all goes up in smoke. These are some of the real serious dangers, both mental and physical, and at the border between those two that come from bed bugs, both these days and back in the early 20th century when they were quite common as well. Dawn Beeler, author of Pests in the City. You're listening to Profiles from WFIU. Dawn Beeler researches and teaches subjects like human geography and environmental justice at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. It sounds like from the very beginning, before this really became officially your career, there was a lot of interest on your part in things like social justice, in things like equality. You know, you said that you started out as an environmentalist, but Was there a moment when you kind of turned a corner? Because I don't think that I have read many books about social justice, books about housing or social injustice that contain as much information as this book about pests did. (laughs) And I thought that was kind of extraordinary. So I'm wondering if at some point, maybe was it early in your research when you were forging this career path in human geography or later when you realized, oh my goodness, this is really so much about social injustice. This is so much about housing reform. This isn't just about creepy, crawly, annoying things. One of the key moments was when I was looking at the rent strikes in New York City in the 1960s. And I realized the degree to which 
even though, you know, rats are joked about as part of life in New York City, and if you go to New York City, you're going to see some rats. <laughs> and they're huge, and people brag about how big they are. It's not so much of a joke for folks in Harlem in the 1960s. And rats are biting people. Who's heard of that outside of these really horrific conditions where there are holes in people's walls and landlords aren't fixing things up? I think that really sealed it for me when I started to see what was going on in Harlem. The protests of the housing rights advocate, Jesse Gray, who is featured in that one chapter of the book. And one of my mentors, Greg Mittman, has also written about Jesse Gray. So Gray led a rent strike against these absentee landlords in Harlem. And rats weren't the only issue. It was also the heat would go off in the wintertime and people would be freezing and the stairs weren't safe. The stairs were crumbling and just a whole host of different issues. He even at one time held a carnival and went outside as a carnival barker and kind of tried to, this kind of step right up thing and put your hand through this child's bedroom wall. And he was a showman and used rats as part of that. And what he ended up doing while uh, it was, this was during a long winter, he mobilized hundreds of families to stop paying rent to their landlords because it's a, it's a legal term, constructive eviction. It means that your landlord has taken such poor care of the home that he's essentially evicting you with those poor conditions. And so at that point, you don't have to pay rent. Well, then you have to prove a constructive eviction. You have to provide some kind of evidence. So Gray mobilized these families who are living in these homes to bring dead rats to the housing court. And it was a successful rent strike. These are very risky ventures because people could end up out on the street. And these families were so convinced that this is an important issue that they got behind this whole rent strike and brought in their rats. There are pictures, amazing pictures in some of the old newspapers of some of these folks carrying rats on like a piece of cardboard and bringing them to the courtroom. That really showed me that this is a special condition that African-Americans in Harlem were facing more than privileged people in other parts of that city. I know you've made a study of various neighborhoods, various regions, and various cities. In your book, you talk a lot about Chicago and some of the housing reform that was attempted there pertaining to pests and otherwise, also in Baltimore, which I know is where you are now, uh, Washington, D.C., and it was really amazing to get a picture of all of these neighborhoods. And not just that, one of the things that I think was probably the most captivating and I want to say least disquieting about your book was when you related stories about communities, mostly inner city communities, that did really well by taking matters into their own hands and coordinating with experts on their own and creating this culture of caretaking that made their communities less attractive to pests. And this is something that maybe become kind of a lost art here at the beginning of the 21st century and that we're learning about anew. So what are some examples of that that particularly got your attention that made you want to investigate them further? Well, the, the really clear example that I can think of is the Henry Horner Homes project in Chicago on the west side. And that was a project where um, so Chicago was found in a Supreme Court case 
to have systematically segregated black from white public housing residents for decades. That was the Gautreau case, which is a very famous case. And I discovered through my research and through talking to the right people that this case actually got connected back up to pests. Housing projects in Chicago that were part of the Gautreau settlement, that means that they were found to have been systematically part of that segregation. So black residents kept in black neighborhoods apart from white residents and generally in poorer conditions. Henry Horner Homes was one of these large public housing projects that was part of that settlement. In the years following that settlement, there was a requirement that the Chicago Housing Authority uh, kind of negotiate with residents about conditions in those homes. And there was a group, Horner Mothers Group, that several women belonged to. They wanted to protect their children. They were concerned about their children contracting asthma, which is something that can happen when you have too many pests in your home. And they decided that one of the things that they really wanted to change and fix about their homes was the pest problem. Thousands of cockroaches living in these units. I don't want to present the Horner Homes case as something that can happen everywhere because it's kind of a special intersection of a few different forces going on. In the 1990s, the Clinton administration brought about what they called public housing reform. Now, in reality, they were actually reducing the number of public housing units overall across the country, and Horner Homes was one of those places targeted. So at that very moment, when housing authorities were shrinking their housing stock for very low-income residents, Horner Homes had this moment where these very low-income mothers wanted to see a reform in the environment. It so happened that their lawyer was well-connected with another group that was working on safe pest control. So the Safer Pest Control Project coming out of Chicago worked with lawyers and consultants to make sure that when this housing project was rebuilt, it was rebuilt as pest-proof. And the women who were part of that mother's group, including a woman named Sarah Ruffin, who I interviewed and who's really wonderful, she and these other mothers helped teach each other how to do this pest control. They actually also took jobs helping with the pest proofing. And then they taught each other how to maintain that pest proofing. And so out of the end of this whole process came a pest proof housing complex. It's a mixed story still, I have to say, because it is part of this Clinton era shrinkage of the overall stock of public housing. And if this were to happen everywhere, it would be happening in conjunction with an overall reduction in the number of public housing units. I think to really appreciate this story, you also have to appreciate that in the United States, we've never really fully invested in high quality, affordable housing for all the people who need it. And large cities across the country have wait lists of hundreds and thousands of families who want to get into affordable housing and who have to wait because there just aren't enough units. I think we have to see the happy story that comes out of Horner Homes in the context of the fact that we as a society don't invest in this extremely important resource for our most vulnerable citizens. And that continues to this day. Even with these happy ending stories like Horner Homes, we don't have enough public housing units for very low-income people. 
listening to Profiles. From WFIU, I'm Aaron Kane. I'm speaking with Dawn Beeler, Associate Professor of Geography at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. Dr. Beeler is also the author of the book, Pests in the City, Flies, Bedbugs, Cockroaches, and Rats. It seems that an inescapable aspect of contemplating pests in our society, in our homes, is something that we just kind of touched on a little bit just now, social stigma. And earlier you are talking about bed bugs, and it seems like there's feedback loops and layers to this issue where you have communities that are sort of ill thought of, the communities that are singled out because they are the kind of places where you find bed bugs. And within that community, there are the people who have more bed bugs, or they're the ones who really have them, or flies, rats, roaches, you name it. And they face a level of ostracism within a community that's already ostracized. And this has been part of it for so long, at least since the turn of the 20th century, where your book begins. I guess my question about that is, is that unavoidable? Is there something that we can be doing to remove that social stigma? That's one of the leading things that I would like to see happen is to take the stigma out of things like bed bugs and having cockroaches and so on. And, and you're right that this does go back even to the early 20th century. Just a, a really interesting anecdote. Many cities had a chinch alley and chinch was one of many nicknames for a bed bug. That name in itself was a stigma on that place. But thinking about the present day and what can we do, I think it's a really tough prospect, given that we have a divided society where there continues to be racism and xenophobia. And I think as long as we have those oppressions in our society, it's hard to get rid of the stigma because there are forces and people who want to stigmatize a group and they will do it as they can. And there's bedbugs as one way of stigmatizing a group. Now, maybe a way that we can start to work on that at a more grassroots or localized level is to have an open conversation. And I think especially in the case of bedbugs, that's what it's going to take. We need to be talking openly and publicly about having bedbugs. And I Whenever I meet someone who's experienced bedbug infestation, I want them to talk about it. So we hear that people from all walks of life can experience this problem, and we can have compassion for each other. If we, if we know someone who's experienced bedbugs, maybe we can feel more compassion about the stranger who's experienced bedbugs. One thing that might help with the stigma is to take a moment to contemplate the lowly housefly, uh, <laughs> our friend Musca domestica, is the first critter that you focus time on in the book. And honestly, I hadn't given it much thought. I hadn't thought too much of the fly as some menacing pest. But just to remind everybody that this is so highly contextual, this is so dependent upon time and place, at the turn of the 20th century, Flies were a big problem. And you know, we think fun colloquial songs like Shoe Fly Don't Bother Me and things like that. We think of them as a nuisance you wave away and make sure isn't walking on your sandwich. But because of how transportation changed and because of how technology changed, technology in this case being screen doors, the role of flies and how we reacted to them, it seems almost quaint to contemplate flies as a big problem to me. 
just regular houseflies, that is. So could you take a moment to sort of walk us through the story of the forgotten menace, the housefly? Absolutely. I like that, the forgotten menace. So at the beginning of the 20th century, we were still a horse-powered society. And so any given city would have thousands of horses or hundreds of horses in it that were providing not only transportation, but the power to do all kinds of other things with machines and manufacturing in the city. So with all those horses comes a lot of horse dung. And just as we as a society have never invested enough in housing, we've also never invested enough in refuse removal. Today we see it in piles of garbage in poor communities where they often get dumped. But back in the day, we saw it in piles of horse manure. And indeed, back then, I I have a little episode in the book that I was fascinated to learn about. I found that the companies that hauled horse manure would often dump piles of horse manure instead of bringing it out to the farm where it could become compost. They might dump it in the backyard of some low-income community. And that indeed happened in Washington, D.C. quite a bit, and I'm sure in many other cities. And so these piles of horse dung attracted flies. While we think of flies, I think, today in the U.S. as an occasional menace, the air would have been thick with flies back in the early 20th century. And there's this joke that I think really illustrates it that I saw again and again as I was reading the literature about flies from back in the day. Believe it or not, people were very interested scientifically in flies, and they would often cite this joke about a man who walks into a bakery and asks for a slice of raisin pie, and then the person at the counter waves away the flies that were perched on it and said, actually, that's cream pie. And so there's just so many flies that they you could mistake a cream pie for a raisin pie. You could practically breathe them in, and fly traps that scientists put out would capture thousands and thousands of flies. So It was a very different environment and I think really hard for us to imagine these days when we don't have that much horse manure around and the kind of refuse we produce doesn't necessarily attract that kind of pest. It attracts other pests. (laughs) Well, and you had these open doors. That's the other thing that was kind of a revelation to me was the idea that not everyone had screens that that had to be invented, and people had to be persuaded. I was really struck by folks who are interested in reading this book. First of all, read this book. Second of all, yes, there are pictures. Third of all, don't worry. They're not all gross pictures of (laughs) bugs and and rats and things because there is more of this pest propaganda, if you like. Here during the First World War, you have this uh, sort of a cartoon ad that shows someone putting a a screen into the side of a house saying, our biggest enemy is not foreign, but domestic. I'd call it anti-insect paranoia, were it not a reasonable concern. But I was really struck by the iconography and how familiar that visual language was of a wartime piece of propaganda against a fly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that reminds me of two other things that I should mention about flies in those days and technologies. So not only was this an era of horsepower and therefore horse manure in our cities, but it was also an era, it was kind of the waning era of the backyard privy. And many neighborhoods had toilets connected to the sewer system, 
But there were other neighborhoods that still had the backyard privy. Well, plumbing was kind of a new thing still. Yeah, yeah. And so there's this one example that I found really fascinating in Chicago where there was an outbreak of waterborne disease or or a diarrheal disease. It was eventually blamed on the flies. And Alice Hamilton, who turned into a a very famous industrial hygienist and advocate for safe workplaces back when she was a young doctor in Chicago working at the Hull House Settlement House, she did this study in which she suggested that there is evidence that this outbreak was related to flies coming out of the horse manure and then settling in the backyard privies and then alighting on people's food. Whatever was coming out of, you know, out of those privies, uh, people's human waste was getting onto flies' feet, and then those germs were getting into people's food, and they ingested them and became sick. Now, it's probably not actually the cause of that particular outbreak. It may have been the cause of other outbreaks, that kind of cycle of flies coming out of the manure and alighting on human waste and then carrying it to food. And then the other thing which you mentioned very rightly is the screens. And many people just didn't want screens. It wasn't that they wanted flies in their houses. It was that flies, as many of them as there were, seemed much less of a problem compared to the desire to be able to stick your head out the window and call into the street, talk with your neighbors from across the street, call to your children, and so on. It was actually a barrier to being sociable to have a fly screen in your window. And so there was this study done in New York where some health advocates wanted to get these immigrant mothers to put window screens in their windows. And these women actually pulled out the screens because it hampered their social interactions and their ability to call out to their children, for example. I find that really interesting that we had to accept the technology of window screens. We had to kind of rethink that interplay between the domestic space inside the home and the public space of the street. Dawn Beeler, author of Pests in the City. Dr. Beeler is Associate Professor of Geography at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. You're listening to Profiles from WFIU. I'm trying to picture precisely how it is that you conduct your research? Or more specifically, I'm having trouble figuring out whether you would be in a lab in a lab coat looking at something under a microscope or whether you would be in the Office of Public Records. Because the level of research and how specific it is and how far afield it ranges from, well, from pests, frankly, is pretty remarkable. So what's a day at the office like? Oh, well, when I'm in full research mode, I'm in the archives, generally. Because, of course, some of these stories go back to 1900, and we don't have any living people from those days. And because I saw this connection between housing and pests, I was doing a lot of work in the archives of housing administrations, city housing administrations, also the health department reports for each year. So I was looking at a lot of health and housing records, basically. And then 
every once in a while, maybe some pesticide records from the Environmental Protection Agency. But in between that, I wanted to talk with real people who are working day to day with these experiences. So I talked with a lot of pest control operators, or as they like to be called today, pest management professionals, actually. I talked with plenty of those folks who had amazing anecdotes about what it's like to go into someone's house and really sniff out bed bugs. And sometimes it's literally bringing a dog in who can sniff out the bed bugs. But sometimes it's them knowing these cues and having a real sensitivity to what it looks like in a home when it has bed bugs or what it smells like. There's even a with a big enough bed bug infestation, you get a certain smell. Um, some people describe it as ripe raspberries. Getting a sense of reality from those folks really helped me understand the visceral experience. And I also tried to talk with some people who didn't come at pests from that professional standpoint, but from actually living with them. So I mentioned Sarah Ruffin, who was one of the moms from Chicago who I spoke with, and she was able to give me this visceral sense of what it was like to live with cockroaches and what it felt like to see children in that housing project who were affected by those cockroaches. And so that gave me a feeling for what it was like to live with these creatures. I talked with folks in Milwaukee who'd lived with rats and what it was like to see rats cross your path constantly. I wanted to be empathetic with those kind of fears and anxieties about what exposure to these animals did to your health and how it felt to live in homes that the landlord and the government didn't seem to care about. You talked a moment ago about, I want to make sure I get this right, pest management professionals. Was Mm -hmm. that it? So this segues as naturally as anything to a discussion about the the miracles of chemistry and how they changed things in the history of pests and pests in the city. We've got DDT and HCN. I think HCN came first and was a lot less discriminating in terms of what and how it dispatched living things. So that comes along, what, a little ways into the 20th century? That's right. Let's talk a little bit about that because I think that's one of the forgotten factors here is we think, oh, old-timey people, they didn't know how to deal with pests and we don't have that problem. Oh, wait a minute, we're starting to have it again with some organisms and we forget about the... uh, the scorched earth policy that we had early on in the battle against pests. That's right. And I think it's important as we think about these chemicals to realize that they were tools for a lot of people. And for many people, they offered a quick fix. And for many people who live with pests on a day-to-day basis, it was important for them in a very personal, very health-related sense that they be able to have relief. And so I don't ever blame the individuals who go seeking out this solution because I've talked with people who've lived with pests and I understand what it feels like to be in that situation. But uh, getting back to those chemicals, so HCN was a hydrocyanic acid gas. Basically cyanide. Right. (laughs) And it was used as a fumigant. And it was basically the pest management professional. And back in those days, they conceded to being called exterminators. And they were actually much less professional than they are these days, for the most part. There was a a cadre of more professionally trained and scientifically trained ones. 
they would deploy this gas in one of a few different means. They could uh, release it from a canister. They could put two different solutions together, and then the gas would be released. Sometimes it was impregnated in a kind of a paper disc that would be taken out of a canister and released into this environment. There are many different ways of deploying hydrocyanic acid gas. The thing that people loved about it was that it seeped into every single nook and cranny to kill every stage of the bedbug life cycle. And the reason why that's important is that the bedbug egg is actually pretty hardy. It can withstand a lot of things. You know, I also read a lot of women's household guides to find home remedies for these various kinds of pests. And those home remedies were great for nymph stage of the bed bug and the adult stage of the bed bug, but they didn't kill the eggs. And so the eggs would eventually hatch and you'd have more bed bugs. So the great thing about HCN was that it suffocated the eggs. Um, the bad thing about <laughs> it was that it was instantly deadly. And to anybody. To, to anybody and everybody. As it started to be more widely used in domestic situations to get rid of the bed bugs, there were more and more cases reported from throughout the country of pest control operators who realized that, oh, there was actually someone at home when we performed this fumigation. Or someone came home a little bit too early and the gas was still there. Or I think one of the most horrifying cases is it was a cold night. The fumigant condensed into the mattress. The person comes home. They lay down on the mattress. Their body heat reheats the gas, and it suffocates them in the night. So these are absolutely horrific cases of poisoning by this chemical. And so it was very tightly regulated. Pest control operators insisted, we have the expertise to manage this gas, kind of resisted some of that regulation. Then there was a whole debate about whether we had to ban it outright. Before we talk about DDT, <laughs> what DDT was used mostly for, which was cockroaches, and there again, built in, I'm thinking of cockroaches here, the ones that you write about in your book, and... I think of another thing about pests that is so unfortunate, kind of on the same topic as social stigma, is that we so often personify people as pests and sometimes vice versa. And evidence for that is the name of the German cockroach, Blatella germanica, not German. Could you talk a little bit about how the German cockroach got its name before we talk about how we dispatched them with the kinder, gentler poison that is DDT? Actually, we think that the species may have originated in northeastern Africa, but then it traveled across uh, basically through Greece and western Russia, and then folks living either in the Prussian Empire or in Russia each called it by the other's name, so kind of stigmatizing the other folks. So the Russians called it the Prussian cockroach, the Prussians called it the it, Russian cockroach. Exactly. And so then later, when it was transported to the Americas, the Prussian name stuck, but then, of course, was changed to German cockroaches. And DDT was the weapon of choice by, what was it, around the 1930s or so when that came along? Actually, the 1940s. It was after so, the war. So it was actually World War II that made DDT into a pesticide. 
And during the war, people around the world were hearing the rumors and the stories about this amazing miracle, this magic bullet for addressing especially malaria mosquitoes and the lice that carried typhus in Europe. So at that point, everyone was very excited. Uh, Householders across the United States were excited for this to become a civilian use chemical. But up until the end of the war, it was restricted in use to just the military. So finally, in 1945, this is really the death knell for HCN because DDT looked much safer. And you didn't have to hire a professional pest control operator to deploy it the way you did with HCN. You could just go to the store and buy a bottle of it yourself and spray it on. Many people did still hire pest control professionals, but you could, if you couldn't afford it, just get a bottle yourself, spray your baseboard. It got rid of your cockroaches, and incidentally, it also got rid of your bed bugs. Listening to Profiles from WFIU. Our guest is Dawn Beeler, author of the book Pests in the City Flies, Bedbugs, Cockroaches, and Rats. Now, I could talk about bedbugs and cockroaches and flies and rats all day, but I understand that recently you have uh, expanded your focus to some other organisms. So, um, What pests are you working with now? Sure. So since about 2011, I've been working with a big interdisciplinary team on mosquitoes. And the question that we were asking was, if we look at neighborhoods that have different histories of disinvestment, meaning the withdrawal of investment in the housing environment and the overall physical environment and infrastructure in those neighborhoods, and compare those with neighborhoods that have had continuous investment and have a growing or healthy housing market, what's the difference in the mosquito ecology in those different places? So I was working with some ecologists, some folks who work on environmental justice, some folks who work on citizen science, which is that idea of involving citizens in doing science and contributing to science. And we looked at about five neighborhoods in West Baltimore, Maryland, neighborhoods that had a really varying history, some of them which had been affected by racial redlining going back to the 1930s, which is one of the leading processes of disinvestment where banks denied conventional loans to primarily black neighborhoods. And in the wake of racial redlining back in the 1930s, because of that disinvestment, the housing conditions went down. People couldn't buy homes in the neighborhoods as much. And many homes have eventually been abandoned. Some of these neighborhoods have up to a third of the properties vacant and abandoned. Compared with, say, a gentrifying neighborhood or a a well-off neighborhood, which has fewer than, say, 3% of properties abandoned. And we found three times as many mosquitoes in those neighborhoods that had a history of racial redlining and housing abandonment. Now, you used a term. I know this is also one of the courses that you teach, but since this is on that topic, I was wondering if you could explain a little bit more about what you mean by environmental justice? Thanks for that question. So environmental justice 
is the idea that everyone should have access and decision-making power in what their physical environment and their social environment is like. So it's basically an ideal that everyone should be able to live in a clean, healthy environment of their choosing. What we actually see in the world is environmental injustice or even environmental racism, where, say, incinerators and garbage dumps and chemical plants tend to be located more in neighborhoods where people of color live and low-income people, though race has generally been the stronger predictor of those disparities in the cleanliness of the air that we breathe and the water that we drink. So environmental justice is a term that gets applied to situations like Flint, Michigan and their lead water crisis because it's a primarily black community. And it's clear that the history of racial disinvestment and racist segregation is what led to the lead poisoning being so focused in the black community there. So mosquitoes are kind of the focus right now. I want to turn the tables on you just a little bit and ask if you're aware of the work at places like Oxford University and some biotech firms that have genetically modified the males of a couple of disease-carrying species of mosquito and kind of weaponizing them as uh, instruments of speciesicide that can take out several species of mosquito. And so You spend a lot of your time using pests to explore other important issues like environmental justice. But do you think that there's a biological injustice at contemplating eliminating a species? We seem to be okay eradicating smallpox, but is doing so with pests a bridge too far? Oh, that's a great question. And I have a student every single semester who asks me that. And I think it's a really hard question. I guess I try to maybe cheat a little with this question and bring it down to my experience in Baltimore, where the mosquitoes that we saw in such abundance in these neighborhoods with a history of racial redlining, they aren't serving much of an ecological purpose there. They're not pollinating flowers or anything. They're not food for anyone. I mean, in many places, mosquito larvae are a food for certain fish. But where these mosquitoes in Baltimore are breeding, it's in like a bottle cap or styrofoam takeout container that's been discarded or in the contours of an abandoned house. There aren't fish swimming around there. In that situation, (laughs) I'd be okay with seeing no mosquitoes. In the larger case, I have a lot more thinking to do about that. But I certainly do think through much of the world where malaria is such a scourge and is a leading cause of infant and child mortality, we do have a lot of options there. I actually think we haven't tried the other options for controlling them and for protecting people better. But malaria is a little bit more outside my wheelhouse. Uh, I shouldn't talk too much about it. A while ago, we were talking about how pests, almost by definition, are something that you want out of your home and off of your mind. But it seems to me like your work, one of the things that it is showing us is that if we keep pests off our mind, we do so at our peril. What are some of the important things that you'd like us to learn from our pests? Great question. I think what we should learn from pests is that 
our cities are thoroughly infused with nature. Our homes are thoroughly infused with nature. We can't get away from nature, and we never have. So I think pests can get us away from this illusion that humans are somehow above nature, that we're fully modern, and that we can modernize. I think another thing that pests can teach us is that we need to invest more in acknowledging that our cities are natural places and that our homes are natural places. And this is such a tired cliche, but the canaries in the coal mine are, I I can't help but go back to that. So the folks who live with pests are in a weird, twisted analogy, kind of like the canaries in the coal mine. They're living with nature in ways that we really don't want. And so we need to pay more attention to that. Those pests are a signal to us that we haven't invested enough in making cities healthy places for everyone. So my vision when I think about pests and cities and our homes is of a kind of future where we can have healthy cities. And those healthy cities are places where we've really thought through what do people need to live? What do people need to have a healthy life? And that we provide that to everyone. Dawn Beeler, I am going to go home and scrub my floors right away. (laughs) Nevertheless, it has been great talking with you. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a pleasure. Dawn Beeler. Associate Professor of Geography at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, and author of Pests in the City, Flies, Bedbugs, Cockroaches, and Rats. I'm Aaron Kane. Thanks for listening. Copies of this and other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found at our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios of Indiana University. The producer is Aaron Kane. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. The executive producer is John Bailey. Please join us next week for another edition of Profiles. Profiles.